Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. An interesting story about how, when it comes to our privacy and security, we are often our own worst enemies. We speak to Joanna Stern from the Wall Street Journal, who asked a certified ethical hacker to get into as many of her webcams as he could. He was easily able to get into her system, take snapshots of her, and even spy on her child through a Wi-Fi-connected baby monitor. Joanna fills us in on everything we need to know. He definitely figured out how to watch me with my approval, with my consent. He watched me in my home. He watched through a baby monitor, so he watched my son as well. But I really did this all to see, one, what the likelihood of someone wanting to break into your webcam is, and then two, how easy is it? And then there's a third part of that too, which is what can we do to protect ourselves if this is a genuine threat and someone may really want to watch you through your webcam? I love the quote that you had in there. When a hacker sent me a photo of my son, after breaking into the baby monitor on my Wi-Fi, my thought was, I'm an idiot. And with a lot of what yep. this uh, is going on here, it is our own fault. We're like our own worst enemies when it comes to this. A hundred percent. And that's really what I got to at the bottom of this is it's human vulnerability versus device or network vulnerability that seem to be the main way that hackers can get to us now. And that really is because so many of the protections in the operating systems and in our phones and in the software has become so good that the hackers tried to entice you through phishing, spear phishing, which is a method of just posing as somebody you may know in an email. In the case of this hacker, he devised a pretty smart plan, right? He saw that I had posted on Twitter a couple of weeks ago that I was looking for a video producer. And he said, well, if I was a hacker, I would just use that information and say, she's looking for a video producer. You asked for two files in this job posting, or you asked for two pieces of collateral. You asked for a resume and you asked for a video reel. And so those are my two ends. He sent two different documents, depending on what kind of computer I was on. He sent a document and then he sent a link to another file. And so presumably that would be the video file where I click this video and hope to watch it, but really it would be a piece of malware downloading to my computer. And the good news is, is that he was, well, two pieces of good news. One, he was using very basic hacking tools, off-the-shelf hacking tools that white hack hackers use to test vulnerabilities of devices and networks and companies, etc. So he wasn't using very advanced technology here to do this. But the good news is, is that he sent these things and the barriers both built into the Mac OS, built into Windows OS, alerted me, right? They alerted me that this was a virus or something shady here was going on. I also knew I was being hacked. And what I sort of realized along the way was, if someone doesn't know this, these could be things that people would intentionally disable or just think is everyday occurrences. I think you mentioned a few times in the article of just how some of these pop-ups are annoying or they're an inconvenience when we're actually trying to get something done. Maybe we want to download a program, an open source program, something like that. And we do have to disable some certain things along the way. I know I've done that before and then re-enable them after, thankfully. Sometimes they are to that point of annoyance where you're like, okay, whatever, whatever, click it, click it, whatever you need to click to get 
through to the end, you're going to do it. And if you're not paying attention close enough, you might open yourself up to these vulnerabilities. One thing that was also like really enlightening to me was just how important some of the stuff we take for granted is. I mean, we've all heard how important passwords are, but it really for me wasn't until the hacker Alexander Hyde, who worked with me on this project, he was like, I can't get into your Nest camera. The only way I could get into your Nest camera is to know your passwords here. You know, I really wanted to try the Nest camera because it's the most popular connected Wi-Fi camera. And there's been lots of talk right now about the security of it. So he said to me, I would need to know your unique password and username for that. And he said, well, I guess I could key log you, right? I could install something on your computer and track all your passwords and eventually get it. He's like, well, I'm not going to do that. But I could also just go into this database of publicly available username and passwords that have come from the numerous breaches over the last number of years, everything from the Yahoo breach to the LinkedIn breach. And those end up on the internet in, in a public space where the hackers can get to them or any security expert can get to them. So he just typed in my email and up came this password that I used to use maybe three or four years back. And, you know, I was like, oh, wow, like just seeing that on his computer screen made me realize, like, have I been as secure as I need to be with my (laughs) passwords? I use a password manager. I always try to remember to use a different password every time. But like, oh, maybe that old account that I flipped there. It really enforced in me, like, how important these things that we do every day are to protecting I mean, not only our face, but all of our digital information. The other thing you mentioned is obviously installing all of those security and uh, operating system updates for your phone, laptops, routers, even your thermostats, you know, anything that connects to the Internet, because those are the security updates that are going to be helping you. Tell us the bottom line. Watch what you're doing on the Internet. Be wary of everything. And when your computer is telling you this could be a problem, this could be a virus, you should probably trust it. Yes to all of those things. Uh, my Again, uh, passwords are important. I, fi- I got my editor to let me leave that in all caps because I just it feels like something we always hear. I'm like, we're beat over the head with it. But like when you see that that password is out there, they can get access to so many things if you're not safe about that, about keeping that password. You guys made a great video for the Wall Street Journal. So we'll link to that also so everybody can get a look and see pictures of your (laughs) webcam being hacked. Joanna Stern, personal tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. Hopefully you're not looking at me through my webcam right now. Next, scammers are always looking for a new way to cheat you out of your money. And one scam in particular that is ramping up are gift card scams. People are posing as grandchildren, government officials, and tech support agents and ask for payments through store gift cards. Gift cards are the choice of scammers because purchases can be made immediately and anonymously. For more on how one family learned the hard way, we spoke to Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. This is a growing issue. The number of people who are reporting that they've lost money to scams and that they've paid with gift cards is really on the rise. And it's targeting everybody, not just elderly people. I talked to someone who works at a cybersecurity firm who received an email from what looked to be his boss. He saw it on his mobile phone. The person said that they needed him to buy $3,000 worth of Amazon gift cards for clients. It looked like a reasonable request, but this man had gone through training at his firm that if you ever get an email like that or a phone call, that it's best to follow up with a phone call to the actual person. So he called his boss. His boss said, no, that did not come from me. It was a spoofed email. That's kind of where it can get really tricky because a lot of times these scammers will spoof email addresses. So you receive a message that appears to have come from someone you know, but if you look at the actual domain name of the email, you can see it's not their actual email address. Right. 
And sometimes they but have just like one letter or a number changed so that it almost looks exactly like the real email. And that's how they get you. That's how they trick you. It can be very, very close. So the best solution always is to call the person and try to verify. What happened with this particular woman that I profiled in my story, 78-year-old woman, she received a phone call from a young man who she said sounded like her grandson. He said he was her grandson and that he had gotten arrested and he needed $4,000 to bail out of jail. And he needed it in the form of gift cards. So she went to her bank, withdrew $4,000 went straight to Walmart. And at first she was so flustered when she was at Walmart that she bought the wrong kind of card. She actually bought prepaid MasterCards. And that's not what the scammer wanted. He wanted gift cards that have a code on the back that you can scratch off. So she went back to her bank, went back to Walmart, bought Walmart gift cards. And this continued to go on a couple of times. And that's a key distinction too. While the scammer is obviously setting this up saying, hey, grandma, bail me out. I need four thousand dollars in gift cards the other half of it was that he was constantly calling back to say hey did you get the cards yet do we have the cards and when she said i have these mastercard ones he even told her no those don't work i need one specifically with the code on the back because then that way he can go online and simply use that code without ever having to have that physical card i think this woman in particular she ended up going back to her bank and pulling out twelve thousand dollars to do this. She did the MasterCard. She'd got 4,000 in Walmart gift cards after, and then another 4,000 in Walmart gift cards before her family finally caught on. And the reason why these scammers like gift cards is because it's so quick. Once they have that code, they can turn around and they can make purchases online. They don't need a physical card. They just need that code on the back. And so before the person even realizes they've been scammed, you know, they could go within minutes or hours if they, you know, inform a family member who's like, oh, you've you've been scammed, that money can already have been spent. In this particular case, people that were trying to help the family out after they found out what was going on, they provided them with tracking numbers and addresses where items had been shipped. They were being shipped to like warehouses in Portland, Oregon and Ontario, California, and they purchased a laptop, a desktop computer, baby formula, which is weird, and a camera, all these things that they can get instantly. And while they were checking some of this stuff, there was a balance on one of the cards. By the time they got back around to it, that balance had been gone. The daughter of this woman, she was on the phone with someone from Walmart who was trying to credit money back to these gift cards. Now, the scammers, of course, still had the code numbers, but someone at Walmart who was trying to be helpful was trying to give the money back onto the cards. Her mother was at an actual Walmart store talking to the customer service desk. She wanted to try to cash out that $650 that was on one of the cards and was told that you know she couldn't get cash for it. So she stepped away, called her daughter. Her daughter advised her, just have that balance transferred to another card. By the time the mother got back to her customer service representative, that $650 had been spent again. Wow. And that's how fast they're working. According to the Federal Trade Commission, 33% of people who reported losing money to a scam throughout the third quarter of this year said it was on a gift card or reloadable card type payment. And so I think the total money that was lost was about $74 million through September. Obviously, sometimes these stories sound so obvious and, you know, the casual listener be like, I'd never fall for some of that. But these stories are examples of that actually happening. So tell us a few tips that we can take away to try to outsmart the scammers. The key thing is if someone, especially if someone calls you and is asking for payment in any form, whether it's gift cards or a wire transfer or checks or whatever, just hang up. If the person is real and they really need your help, you're going to find out about it in some other way. Just hang up because where they get people is the person is nervous and they're making rash decisions. 
and they're not thinking it through. So the scammer wants to keep that person on the phone and get what they need. So I think once a person is able to just hang up and think through it, they probably will come to the conclusion that it's not a good idea to do this. So hang up. If someone is claiming to be a relative, a grandson, just again, hang up, call your actual grandson back. Now, the woman in this case did call her grandson and he didn't answer his cell phone. So that was convincing to her that he actually might have been in jail and didn't have access to his cell phone. But even in that situation, if you can't reach that person right away, call another trusted relative, call your sister, your brother, whatever. Try to verify whether this story that's being told to you is even true. And what these scammers will do is they will beg you, don't tell my mom. They try to get you in your confidence because they know if you try to verify it, it's going to be discovered to be false. Right. So that's kind of a red flag right there. Julie Jargon, family and tech correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And an interesting story about how your brain might play tricks on you. You've heard of the placebo effect, but what about its evil twin, the nocebo effect? It's when a person experiences negative symptoms from an inert pill or treatment, sometimes even from verbal suggestions. Studies are currently being done to better understand both of these, the placebo and nocebo effects. For more on this story, we spoke to science writer advice, Shayla Love. I've written about the placebo effect before, and I've read about it a lot. And I've always found it completely fascinating, the idea that people can make themselves feel better by taking something that is essentially nothing. It has no active ingredient. But as much as I've always loved the placebo effect and loved to learn about it, I felt like it was sort of inaccessible to me. That said, the nocebo effect, which is when you feel bad from nothing, I've always felt like is completely accessible to me at any moment in time. (laughs) And so ever since I was little... If you had a doctor who said, be careful of these side effects, I would immediately start to feel them right away. Just like the thought of food poisoning can give me a stomach ache. And so I felt like the nocebo effect was something that I could really easily tap into. And if it was placebo effects twin or evil twin, how could I access one and not the other? So that led me into wondering why was I susceptible to one and not the other? And what's really going on? And what's the mechanisms of these effects? I think you even noted in your article, a lot of people even suspect some of this stuff that was happening in Cuba to some of the diplomats and they were hearing weird buzzing noises and then they started getting all of these physical symptoms because of it. Some people have even played it up to it being part of the nocebo effect, maybe not anything malicious that anybody was doing. It might have just been this. I think a lot of people can relate to that. And on the other side, the placebo effect, you talk about how you feel it might be inaccessible to you. Let's say people that have an affinity for crystals and, you know, they say I get my rose quartz and then I'm starting to feel a lot better, a lot more calm and things like that. And Some people just think it's BS because maybe they can't access that kind of placebo effect from themselves. So I think it's very relatable, these two notions. Yeah, crystals are a great example because I have lots of friends who love their crystals and I think crystals are very pretty. But I've gone out and had people say, this one's really going to make you feel really good and make you feel awake. And I've taken these things home and just kind of waited and like crickets. You know, like nothing's happening. (laughs) Right. And this was part of why I got so curious about this. Like, why do some people just have this main line to the placebo effect that I didn't seem to have? And so what have you learned through your research? Because they use placebos on a lot of clinical trials and studying other medicines. So put together some of the dots for us on this. I guess the first thing to say is that the placebo and the nocebo effect are real effects. It's not just in somebody's mind. Both of them can cause real physiological changes. Because of that, for a long time, we've actually tried to get rid of the placebo effect when we study medicine in clinical trials. Because how can you be sure if a medicine is working if the placebo effect can be so pronounced? 
So we have placebo-controlled trials so that we can give somebody something that's inactive and see if the person who gets the active medication is actually doing better than the placebo person. And only if the person who gets the medication does better than placebo do we determine that that's a, a good medication. But scientists now are starting to rethink that a little bit. And they're saying if the placebo effect is so powerful, maybe we shouldn't get rid of it. Then maybe we should try to use it to our advantage, right? Like if this is something that can really help us. And, and likewise, if the placebo is really making people worse, we should try to understand that. When you go to the doctor, if they tell you that something is going to hurt, if people expect that something is going to hurt, it can actually amplify the pain that people feel. So that's important. We need to understand how these effects work if we're going to understand where they're coming into play in, in a medical context. So what I discovered after learning that these effects are very real is that they're probably not exactly like twins. Rather than nocebo being the evil twin, it's more like the grumpy cousin or something. It's, <laughs> the mechanisms are slightly different. So the nocebo effect has a lot more to do with anxiety than the placebo effect does. And there's some evidence that in the brain, there's some slightly different pathways that they take. So we can't really think of them as identical forces. So it would make sense that somebody like me could be really susceptible to the placebo effect, but not to the placebo effect. Yeah. And it makes sense, this notion of anxiety. It's like the first thing I thought of is when kids are getting shots and they start crying because it hurts, yet you know, they haven't been pricked yet. This anxiety, it amplifies the pain. So you're feeling these experiences before they even happen. So that totally makes sense. And on the other side, you talk about how the placebo a lot of times is a result of learned experiences. If I've had a great experience with my doctor before they've helped me out or the medication I've been taking really helped out, then if I'm telling you, hey, this is also going to work, then you might get a placebo effect out of that. Part of what they're trying to do and learning more about this is kind of pairing active drugs with placebos and maybe give you a drug for a little bit that is working, then wean you off, give you placebo, then switch back and forth. That way you get that extra benefit of it. Context matters. When you give somebody a placebo pill, the pill doesn't doesn't really matter. Like we, we associate a placebo with a physical pill, but it really could be anything. What matters more is your beliefs, your history with medicine, your history with pain, your history with doctors. And so for me, I learned a lot really about myself. I grew up in a family of scientists. Everybody's really medically oriented. And so if something started to go wrong in the body, immediately people could start offering to you, here are all the things that might be wrong with you. And it's kind of an anxious, fraught setting almost immediately. So it makes sense that I would be somebody who would be prone to once I started feeling something or heard a suggestion that that's immediately where my mind would go and sort of bring about the nocebo effect. You're There's conditioned to it as a kid before you even knew it, really. Exactly. Yeah. So the researchers that I talked to said that even if I'm prone to the nocebo effect because of my experiences and the context in which I was raised, anybody's body and brain can learn to accept and express the placebo effect. So you mentioned a great example, which is mixing in a placebo pill alongside an active drug. So for pain, this is really promising because you could give somebody a painkiller for two days and then give them a placebo on the third day. And you don't even have to lie. You can tell them that that's what you're doing. Right. There's no deception involved. But their body will kind of be conditioned to the response. So when you take that placebo pill at the same time that you took the active pills, it still provides the same effect. And suddenly you're taking less of a medication, which is always the goal is not to be taking things. And with the opioid crisis, if you could take placebos for pain instead of an opioid for pain, that would be a, a great outcome for a lot people. I suggest everybody go out and read it. The Power of the Nocebo Effect. Thank you very much. Shayla Love, science writer at Vice. Thanks. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter 
and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.